Scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are returning this morning to our series in the life of Abraham, and uh, if you remember several weeks ago, we began looking at Genesis chapter 12 and saw God's call there of Abram out of uh, the land of the Chaldeans, the place where he had lived, into the land that God would show him, the land of Canaan, where he has now uh, returned and, and where he is as we pick up the the uh, story this morning. And if this sounds familiar to you, what we just read in chapter 20, uh, it's because it should. This same thing happened in Genesis chapter 12. Second half of chapter 12, immediately after learning of God's call uh, of Abram out of uh, the land in which he had lived, we read of Abraham giving up his wife Sarah to Pharaoh in that instance. There was a famine in the land of Canaan. Abraham fled with his household and 
ultimately gave up his wife, Sarah, to Pharaoh. And the same kind of thing happened there as happened here. Um, God afflicted Pharaoh in the same way that God afflicted Abimelech in order for Sarah ultimately to be returned to her, to her husband, to her, to her home. Uh, so, you know, same story, different events. You know, this is not a, a repeat of something that happened earlier. We all know that we tend to sin in ways that we've sinned before. None of us has ever been able to say, well, I committed that sin once and I never did it again. All right, so Abraham did what we all do. He fell back into a sin, a grievous sin that had a, a huge impact on Sarah and uh, on Abimelech and his household, all kinds of people all around him, including, of course, his very self. What struck me as I was studying Genesis 20 this morning was, uh, this morning, this week, also this morning, but this week, uh, what struck me as I was studying Genesis 20 was the excuse that Abraham gave to Abimelech in the passage. You saw it there when he said in verse 11, there is no fear of God at all in this place. But who fears God in this passage? Abimelech. Abimelech is the one who fears God, not Abraham. There's no fear of God at all in Abraham. Now, the, the fear of God that Abimelech demonstrated was what we'll call a sub-Christian fear of God. It's not the fear of God that we actually are called to as a grace gift of God to enjoy. That wasn't the fear of God that was present in Abimelech. But in the case of Abraham, there was a complete absence of any fear of God at all. If there had been that, what we'll call a, a right fear of God or a Christian fear of God, a, a fear of God that actually springs from uh, love for God and is a result of a, a due consideration of God's love for us, if that fear had been present in Abraham's life, he, he wouldn't have feared Abimelech. He wouldn't have sinned against his wife by basically saying to her, if you really love me, you'll give yourself up to anyone who wants you so that my life will be preserved. That wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been all the bad things that happened to Abimelech, someone who, because God said to Abraham, the nations will be blessed through you, Abraham actually ought to have had a posture before Abimelech of asking God, how are you calling me potentially to bless him? Right? This fear of God that was lacking in Abraham led to all manner of sin and pain around Abraham, amongst the people that he loved, and surely in his own heart as well. So there's an absence of the fear of God in Abraham. There's the presence of a sub-Christian fear of God in Abimelech. But there is a fear of God that Christians are called to enjoy, that, that Abraham, by faith, had access to, but didn't appropriate for himself. The question that I think we need to wrestle with this morning is, do we enjoy that 
uniquely Christian fear of God? Or is your fear of God completely absent, like Abraham's? Or perhaps your fear of God as a Christian is more like that of Abimelech's, one that we would consider sub-Christian. The simple fact of the matter that's hard to get our heads around, but no less true, is that there is a fear of God that is a grace gift that actually flows from and is not in any way incongruent with the love of God. So the challenge to us this morning, I think, is to really really begin to wrestle through. What does it mean to fear God in a way that doesn't look like Abimelech and, and terror concerning God's wrath, but as Christians, actually is something that, that causes us to, to tremble with joy. Where does that kind of fear come from? That's what we'll consider this morning. We'll look at three uh, truths from this passage, three things that we need to consider. First, the absence of fear the absence of the fear of the Lord, second, the presence of the fear of the Lord, and then third, the offer of the fear of the Lord in this passage. So the absence, the presence, and the offer. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do pray that you would help us. Lord, there's, there are things here, not, in this, not just in this passage, but in your word, that we have such a hard time getting our heads around. I know I did this week. Lord, I thank you for the ways in which you've challenged me and and are beginning to help me grow in this area. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that that you would help us to grow, that you would help us to be people who rejoice in the fear of you in the same way that your son rejoiced in the fear of you. Lord, we need major paradigm shifts in our thinking. But Lord, we need more than just a change in our way of thinking. We need a change of heart. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit to that end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the absence of the fear of God. And of course, we see that in the life of Abraham in this passage. Abraham, you know, feared Abimelech. He said to Abimelech, I was convinced there was no fear of God in this land, that you were going to kill me in order to have my wife, Sarah. Abraham was guided by his fear of man, his fear of death, of personal harm of the loss of safety, right? These were the things that were driving Abraham. There was an absence of the fear of the Lord. There was a presence of this greater fear, fear of personal harm in the life of Abraham. There was also with that, not surprisingly, because these two things go hand in hand, a failure to remember the promises the goodness of God. It's, it's indicated in the passage. It's actually, uh, well, we see it in verse 13. When Abraham says, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. It actually, in, in the Hebrew, it's not even really like singular God, capital G. It's more the idea of when the gods. There's just this impersonal kind of reference to this God who had revealed himself to Abraham. This God who Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, 
that Abraham is my friend, right? This is the kind of relationship that Abraham enjoyed with God. Remember, we saw back in uh, Genesis chapter 18 that God had come with the angels and Abraham had prepared this meal for them and, 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 then, and then stood with them as they ate. It was an ultimate sign of fellowship. This is the God whom Abraham knew. And yet here we are in Genesis chapter 20 and Abraham, as he's talking to Abimelech, just kind of makes this random reference to the gods, like not even really the God, and then says, you know, just kind of caused me to wander. There's, there's no remembrance of, there's no holding on to the fact that this is the God who revealed himself to him, who led him out of one land into a land and said, I have promised you this place. And then whenever Abraham would wander away, God would find ways to bring him back to it. This wasn't an impersonal, uncaring, practically non-existent God who was causing Abraham to wander aimlessly. Now, the challenge, of course, is so often in our lives, when we find ourselves fearing something more than fearing God, and again, I'm using that word fear, but you've got to accept the fact that there's a different way of thinking about fear than the way that we always think about fear, all right? But there's a, a, there's a fear of man, a fear of loss, a, a fear of failure, a, a fear of harm, all these other fears that can be elevated of this grace-gifted fear of God that when those things are elevated above that, we find ourselves forgetting who God is at all. It's as if we don't know him in that moment. We don't consider anything of his goodness, anything of his mercy, of his grace, of his provision in our lives. We can only see the thing that we dread, the thing that we've elevated to a place of importance above him. That's happening in Abraham's life. He's forgotten God completely. He feels as though he's wandering aimlessly. There's no one helping him. He's all alone. These are the things that he's telling himself, even though we know, and he knows better than we know, the rest of the story. All right. So, where did that lead for Abraham? Well, it led to him... Failing to love his wife, willingly giving her up, in fact, manipulating her in such a way that she felt a sense of obligation and duty to do that very thing. Fear of man, evidenced by a failure to trust God and ultimately a failure to love others. Now, we should not be too quick to judge Abraham, because as I mentioned in the introduction, we to do these very things. We fall back into sin patterns all the time. And I think if we were to step back and really kind of diagnose our hearts in that moment, take a good look at what's going on, we will find that it's not unlike what was going on in the heart of Abraham. There was something that was a greater fear in our lives, something that we had elevated to a place of importance above God that we were terrified we might lose. And thus, it had a controlling influence in our lives. 
leading us to ultimately forget as if God even ever existed, has ever been good and merciful toward us, ever saved us through his son Jesus Christ, and then ultimately leading us to abandon our love and responsibilities to the other people around us, let alone our love for God. We all do this. Romans 7 is such a, (laughs) that's us, right? Paul in Romans chapter 7, the good that I want to do, I fail to do. And the, the, the evil things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. Who will rescue me from this bondage of death? Paul cries out at the end of Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if this morning you find yourself recognizing, you know what, I am more like Abraham than I care to admit. I can picture the train wreck that Abraham must have been experiencing as he stood before Abimelech, this pagan king, and was being asked by a pagan king, what is it that you have done to cause me to sin? And as you picture your wife in Abimelech's household, say you're Abraham, right? You can, you can picture the train wreck that he was experiencing, the conviction that he felt. Maybe you are experiencing that kind of conviction as you consider a life that has become a train wreck. Let me tell you first and foremost that we know as Christians what that feels like, don't we? But we also know the good news. In Christ there is hope. In Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is no condemnation. No condemnation means for a Christian no longer any dread of God's wrath. That's what makes Christian fear unlike the sub-Christian fear that we see in the passage. So let's move now from the absence of fear in the life of Abraham to the presence of a sub-Christian fear in the life of Abimelech. Let's take a look first at that. The passage begins in, in, uh, in chapter 20, verse 1, from there Abraham journeyed. From where? The last time we saw Abraham was back in chapter 19, verse 27. Let me read that for us. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That's from where Abraham had come. Abraham living in Mamre, Among the oaks of Mamre, Abraham, who had returned to this place where he had the night before pleaded with God, asking, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? After God had said, here's what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. From there, Abraham had come and is now in Gerar. From there, Abraham interacted with this king named Abimelech. This king who would ultimately ask the same kind of question, right? Abraham in Genesis 19, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abimelech in chapter 20, will you indeed slay the innocent? Same question, same God. In Genesis chapter 19, Abraham said to God, 
Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abimelech was learning that the God of all the earth will indeed do what is just. God confronts Abimelech in the passage. God says to Abimelech, you're a dead man because you took the wife of another man. We saw that in verse 3. But down in verse 6, God says this wasn't just a matter of you taking another man's wife. The issue is ultimately that you're, you're in danger of sinning against me. So verse 6, therefore, uh, no, verse, yeah, verse 6. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God was explaining to Abimelech that this sin that God had prevented Abimelech from committing was in fact sin against him, worthy of his judgment, which is why you see down at the, uh, the end of the passage in verse 7, if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There's, there's a warning given to Abimelech. It was a warning that fell on deaf ears in Sodom and Gomorrah. God will judge the wicked. And among those whose hope is not in Christ, apart from the grace of God that exposes our need for his forgiveness, this kind of fear is appropriate. And if seen for what it is, actually itself an evidence of God's grace. John Newton. John Newton was a a slave trader. John Newton was born in uh, the 1700s. He was born in 1725. Um, Age 11, he uh, went to sea with his father. How would you like that? Hey, kid, no more school for you. Let's go sailing. Age 11, he went off to sea with his father. Uh, He would end up spending 12 years in the British Navy. Part of that time, trading slaves. uh, uh, John Newton would come to see his need for God's grace. He, a self-professed wretch of a man, trusted Jesus for his salvation. He became a pastor and a hymn writer. He wrote hymns like Amazing Grace, a hymn that we're all very familiar with. The second verse of which reads like this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. What John Newton came to see is that the fear of God's wrath that he felt was real, was appropriate, and the fact that he recognized it as such was in fact an evidence of God's grace in his life. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." This awareness of there's a God who is holy and just and whose wrath I deserve. I am terrified by the thought of God's wrath. Newton says it's actually God's grace that taught me that. I wouldn't know it apart from God's grace. I'd be dead to it. And that very same grace that made me aware of this fear of God's wrath is the same grace that relieved that fear. 
was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears, relieved. Fear of God's wrath will not compel you to love him. Fear of God's wrath compelled Abimelech to obey him. I'll do what you're saying, God, because I don't want to die. Unfortunately, too many of us have equated the Christian life with an Abimelech-like response to God. God is a God of wrath. He will punish me if I don't obey him, and so I'm going to obey him so I don't get punished by him. That does not lead to love of God. It actually leads you to hate him. Martin Luther understood that. Martin Luther was a monk. Martin Luther, of course, was the, uh, in many ways the, the spark that lit the Protestant Reformation when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door in, the, the, um, in, in Wittenberg. Right? The first of which said, when our, Lord Savior, when our Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant that all of life was to be a life of repentance. He didn't understand that for a big chunk of his life. As a monk, he thought that repentance was actually penance. It was something that we were to try to do in order to make ourselves right with God. Luther had an Abimelech understanding of what it meant to be in a relationship with God as a monk. I must do these things or else God will destroy me. Luther would say, in fact, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Fear of God in the Abimelech sense, this sub-Christian fear of God will not lead us to love him. It will not lead us to love others. And let's remember that the entire law of God is summed up as a law of love. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Sub-Christian fear will not lead to love. But God's perfect love casts out that sub-Christian fear. So now we're getting into the, the fear and the love relationship that we so often think of. You're familiar with 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That perfect love is the love of God that was demonstrated at the cross. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is the love of God demonstrated for us at the cross that drives out that sub-Christian fear, that dread of God, that, that sense of the only way that I'm going to be okay is if I can somehow placate this God whose wrath is just waiting to be poured out upon me. Only God's love will drive out that sub-Christian love so that we can love God and love others as we're commanded to do. So there's an absence of the fear of God in Abraham. And there's this presence of a sub Christian fear in the life of Abimelech. But the Bible extends the offer of a fear of God in which I'm going to say we may tremble 
with joy. There's a, a book that I read this week. Um, the title of the book is Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. I encourage you to pick it up and read it. Um, I actually read it twice this week. <laughs> I read it once and then I went back and I reread all my highlights because this is involving a paradigm shift for me. Listen, um, the way that I've always talked about the fear of the Lord in the Christian sense is this reverence, right? The, the, the dread of God, the, the fear in the sense of, you know, fearing his wrath, of, of wanting to run from him, that's gone as a Christian. In Christ, there's no condemnation. But there is this fear of God that the Bible calls us to, and, and the way that it's often described, the way that I've described it is kind of this reverential awe of God. The fear of the Lord is not less than that. What I'm beginning to appreciate is that it is actually so much more than that. Reeves' book, Rejoice and Tremble, has, has helped a lot, and I, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll pick it up and read it. I mean, it's, he's taking God's word, and he's taking us through different passages of Scripture, and he's helping us understand how the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's a desirable thing. The problem, of course, is all the baggage that comes with that word fear. And, you know, the Bible doesn't do a whole lot to alleviate that baggage by changing the word. It'd be great, right? That, that would make it so much easier if the, if the noun fear could be replaced with some other noun fear, like another noun that means something different. But the Bible doesn't allow us to change the word. It just allows us to change the adjectives that surround the word. Because the Bible uses the same root word for fear, Old Testament and New Testament, in both these sub-Christian ways of talking about it and these entirely Christian ways of talking about it. And so there's really no other word that we can choose there's just a new way of thinking that we need to employ and ultimately a heart change so that we can fully appreciate the difference. So how can we talk about this new fear of the Lord that's an absence of the fear that we once experienced, perhaps, or ought to have rightly experienced as we considered God's wrath as the sinful people that we are? What can we say about the fear of the Lord? Well, very familiar verse, Proverbs 9.10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, we don't begin to learn anything about God truly concerning who He is until we fear Him in some way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But here's the thing. If there's one passage I want to encourage you to, to meditate on this week, it's in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, this is talking about Jesus. Isaiah is prophesying concerning Jesus. Let me read just the first two verses and the first line of the third verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Again, this is, this is talking about Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is saying that the incarnate and now risen Christ, Jesus, 
will actually delight in the fear of the Lord. And what characterized his life on earth was having the Spirit of God upon him, the Spirit who is himself, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we're actually being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and that same Spirit that rested upon Jesus indwells us now. You could connect the dots, right? As we grow as Christians, one of the things into which we are growing is a grace-generated, spirit-enabled, empowered ability to rejoice in the fear of the Lord. Now, I know you're sitting there going, that sounds crazy. I can stand up and testify. I had to read the book twice because it sounded crazy to me too. But you go back and you read these passages and you realize, no, there's something here. I've got to set aside that way of thinking about fear and allow the adjectives to be changed from dread to rejoicing, from fleeing to actually moving toward this God and exalting in him. And it's also something that Scripture tells us we should actually desire to grow more into. Psalm 86, verse 11, David says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The the whole problem with sin is that it has disintegrated everything that God had rightly integrated at creation. The, The very... Fabric of creation itself, disintegration. Man's relationship with God, once rightly integrated, Adam and Eve in the garden, walking in the cool of the evening with God, disintegrated. Relationships between people, disintegrated. Our very hearts, disintegrated. David prays, Unite my heart so that I might love you more. In reality, to say that I might fear your name is, in fact, to say that I might love you more. These things go together. Rightly fearing God, being in awe before him, Reverencing him, rejoicing in him, marveling at him actually serves to increase our love for him. How do we grow in this love? Scripture does give us some things that we can point to. I'm just going to hit on two. And I, I just want to ask what, it ha- what might have happened if Abraham had done these things? How do we grow in our fear of the Lord? Reflect on his goodness. Reflect on his goodness. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, Samuel speaking to the people of Israel says this, only fear the Lord. When, When they were fearing the nations around them, because they didn't have a king like all the other nations had, Samuel said to them, only fear the Lord. And serve him faithfully with all your heart, 
For consider what great things he has done for you. I want to grow in your fear of the Lord in this joyful, reverential, awe-filled, grace-enabled way that actually serves to increase your love for him. Meditate on his love for you. All the great things he has done for you. What if Abraham had done that? What if we were to do that? Consider his forgiveness. We read as part of the confession of sin this morning in Psalm 130, the assurance of forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Right? Reflecting on the forgiveness of God actually leads your fear of him to increase. Could that possibly be dread? You are a forgiving God. I'm terrified of you. I can't wait to get away from you. This is, this is not the fear of the Lord. You are a forgiving God. You are a God who is holy. I deserve nothing but your wrath. But you, in, in a mercy that's beyond my ability to comprehend, at infinite cost to yourself, have made a way for me to be forgiven. There's a hymn that we sing, a spiritual, every Easter. We did it this past Good Friday, and then we picked up those last two verses added them on Easter morning, right? Were you there when, I crucif- when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when he raised up from the dead? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. That Hebrew word in the Old Testament that has to do with fearing God, used in both a good sense and a bad sense, is most often translated Tremble. And that spiritual gets it. When we reflect on the significance of who God is, his holiness, his perfection, of our own sin, and of the fact that we only deserve this holy God to reject us entirely and pour out his wrath upon us. And then when we consider the cross, where God demonstrated his love for us, in the crucifixion and in the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, it causes us to rejoice and tremble. Not with a trembling that has to do with guilt and condemnation and dread of the potential for future judgment. That's gone. But a trembling such as I've never experienced but I long to. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that we will grow in our understanding of what it means to rightly fear God, to not have that whole idea be something that's completely absent from our lives, nor to have it be something that's like so much of what we experience perhaps growing up, and perhaps that's been your experience to this day. I have to obey God. If I don't, he'll crush me but rather to experience this Christ-like, spirit-enabled, grace-empowered fear of the Lord that causes us to say with joy, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to Rejoice the way the psalmist rejoiced. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Lord, 
These things just don't go together in our heads. That's our problem for which we need your help. Lord, may it be that as we consider what it means to rightly fear you, to rejoice and tremble before you, it leads us to shout to one another, clap your hands, be glad, rejoice with loud songs of joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.